Okay, good morning, everybody. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the way of your only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be enabled to serve you with pure minds, through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, another long one for the verses today. Acts 13, 38 to 39. Let's speak these together. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Yes, good. Let it be known to you, you brethren. Firstly, who is the one speaking? Think about what book of the Bible this is. Well, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so you're, you're right. But as far as characters go, who is the individual that's actually, that Luke is recording saying these words? Okay. <laughs> yes, technically you are correct. <laughs> what human man with a mouth? This is not a great way to start the morning. <laughs> yes, Peter, okay. And who, who is Peter preaching to when he says, you brethren? And Okay, new, new Christian church, but also because it doesn't have to be just one thing because the Bible is not just static to where we look at this and we say, oh, well, Peter preached this to the new church and to the new Christians, uh, but he's certainly not preaching it to us because we weren't there. Uh, you know, lest we think that the Bible is a static thing, we also say that when he says, you brethren, he's also talking about all Christians. So today, that's the... That's the thing, that when he says, let it be known to you, brethren, he's actually talking to you. The you really is you. That through this man, this is one of those times where I kept the editorial mark, because I think it's important here. This man, who is this man? Jesus. Jesus. Why is it important in this case that the editorial capital M is there? Jesus. Well, yes, but, but Why? It is Christ, but when he says that this man, what's important firstly that he says this man? Why doesn't he say God? Because he was a man, because of the incarnation, which says this man was really God. Through this man, that is Christ, who is more than a man, he is at least man, but he is more than man, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This is important too, because here we have preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Okay? The content of the preaching is the forgiveness of sins, but is the, does this mean that the, the only way that the forgiveness of sins is encountered is by the preaching? 
Well, through Jesus is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, i.e., well, we're just going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. And the reason we can talk about it is because of Jesus. Is that the, is that the limit? No, it isn't. Certainly, we, do, we proclaim the forgiveness of sins. So when you come to church and you sit in the pew and there's a sermon that is preached, which is a, a divinely inspired thing, it's the Lord who's making a proclamation that he is declaring to you the forgiveness of sins. When you deal with the church, or rather when the church deals with you, she is always proclaiming to you the forgiveness of sins. And what is the only reason that allows her to proclaim that forgiveness of sins? This man. We can't preach to you forgiveness of sins apart from this man. But it's not only the proclamation or not only the idea that we're going to talk about forgiveness, like you come here and I say, well, we are forgiven in the Lord. True statement or false statement? True, yeah, that's not a trick. We are forgiven in the Lord. And if I say that to you, then it's true. Again, forgiveness of sins preached through this man. Forgiveness, you are forgiven in Christ Jesus the Lord. But the word does what it says, which means that through Jesus, you don't only preach as in listen to a sermon about the forgiveness of sins, but you receive the very thing itself. The church not only declares to you about the forgiveness of sins, but it also gives you the forgiveness of sins. It declares your sins forgiven. Again, why? Through this man. When you come to confession and absolution, the pastor doesn't say, because I have heard your confession and think that you sound sincere enough, I, Pastor Ferguson, forgive you your sins. Just like we talked about last week, it isn't the man who does this, and anyone who says, you know, in a situation like that, anyone who criticizes confession and absolution because the man is deeming himself to be like God and forgiving sins, has a valid criticism of confession and absolution. But anyone who criticizes the ordo of confession and absolution that says, as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority I forgive you your sins, it does not have a grounds to stand upon because it's through this man, through this Christ. Your sins are not forgiven because pastor deems you worthy. Your sins are forgiven because Christ is the one who does it. Forgiveness of sins happens through this man. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. Who is justified? Yes, everyone who believes. Which means that not everyone is justified. Because there is a difference between atonement and justification. What is atonement? Okay, right, that there is a cost, there's a cost associated with sin, and Jesus pays that cost. The best way to think about it is in terms of Jesus' parable about the wedding banquet. Who pays for the wedding banquet? Right, the bridegroom pays for the wedding banquet. What is covered on that ticket? Everything. Everything. The food, the drink the uh, garment to get in, all of it is covered. That is atonement, that it's already been paid for. But justification is receiving that gift. 
only those who she needs to use the potty. Um, only those who receive that are the ones who are justified, and the only way that you receive that gift is through faith. Uh, so everyone's sins are atoned for, but there are some who will say, I'd rather have that ticket myself. I don't want to receive the gift freely. And the Lord says, okay, here you go. You are, you are not justified. You don't receive the forgiveness of sins, not because I haven't purchased it and not because I don't want to give it, but because you're rejecting it, because you don't want it. Because you said, no thank you, I won't take it. So that's the difference between atonement and justification. Justification is by, good Lutheran answer, justification is by, yeah, by, by grace alone through faith. So the believer is the one who is justified from what? Anything under the law that you can't be justified by on your own, which is really not to say anything bad about the law itself, because the law itself is actually very good, which is a topic for another day. Rather, it is to say that when you compare yourself to the law, and you look at the law and you say, well, this is the righteousness that is demanded. What are, what are the acts that I can do to follow the law that are going to make me righteous to, to salvation and justify me before God? Well, nothing, because I'm starting off on the wrong foot. If you start off on the foot that says, well, first of all, I'm a sinner, you've already taken the wrong first step because any other step that follows after that is not going to be in keeping with the law. So the only way that you're justified by the law is by being in Christ, because Christ is the one who not only keeps but also fulfills the law, and by being in Christ, you fulfill the law, but only insofar as you are in Christ. Not on your own can you fulfill the law, only in Jesus. So you receive the forgiveness of sins through this man, which is what gives you justification, apart from what you could be justified by in the law, all by yourself. Does this sort of make sense? It's a lot. But this is meaty. That's why I put all, both of the verses in, because they're important. Okay, let's speak these uh, together again. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you, you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Yes. What do you believe according to these words about the office of the keys? I believe that when called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our Lord dealt with them himself. Uh, there, is a, there is a hymn about this, and I don't remember the title. The tune is da 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 It's in the Confession and Absolution section. But one of the stanzas is um, about when ministers lay on their hands absolved 
for Christ the sinner stands, something like that. And it's drawn right from this. I believe that when called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they you know, exercise the office of the keys according to the authority of the church given by Christ in the office, um, it's valid and certain. We should believe that it really uh, is taking place. Um, what it means to exclude openly unrepentant sinners is twofold. There's two, really, two major levels of church discipline, one that we would call a minor ban and one that we'd call a major ban. The, the minor ban is, um, just as an example, say you have a couple that's living together and they're not married, um, you institute a minor ban, which is to say, because of this sin that you're living in, it's unsafe for you to come to receive the sacrament because it's going to do harm to you. Uh, so I'm going to ban you from receiving the sacrament. You can still come to church. You can still receive the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to come to, to confession and absolution. And I want you to stop being in sin so that I can give you the sacrament again. That's a minor ban. And there are, there are a number of instances where a minor ban is an appropriate use of the office of the keys. It's not as extreme as what the second, the major ban is. The major ban is excommunication. So when somebody is despising the gospel, when somebody lives a life of blatant unrepentance in public sin, when somebody refuses to forgive or to receive forgiveness, and the church has progressed through as many stages and taken as much time as is appropriate um, according to the mandate of Christ, then uh, the major ban is instituted. Uh, and that is, like I've said in weeks past, it ought to be rare. A pastor ought not really even be doing more than three to five excommunications in his entire ministry. That's how rare the major ban is supposed to be. A pastor is never supposed to take advantage of that and just say, oh, you disagree with me? Well, then you're excommunicated. Oh, you don't like how we do things here? Well, then you're excommunicated. How do you like me now? You know, that the power that is, is vested in the pastor by the office of the ministry uh, is to be used within the church and for the sake of love of the neighbor and for the purpose of bringing the repentant sinner or the unrepentant sinner to repentance, nothing else. So these are, this is the, the use of what is called the binding key. One key lo locks, the other key unlocks. Excluding openly unrepentant sinners in a major ban or a minor ban is locking sins. Um, that's me saying your sins are not forgiven you uh, according to the word of Christ. Just like I would say, in, you know, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In this case, I say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I do not forgive you your sins. In fact, I lock them to you. May they be a ball and chain about your neck and may they drag you down until you realize how horrible they are for you and you seek repentance so that I can finally let you free from them and give you what's good for you. That's the purpose of that. Um, and then lastly this, when you hear absolution from your pastor, of course, one of the things that he asks is, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And you say, yes. And if you said, no, I wouldn't proceed with the liturgy because you, something's wrong, okay? But anyway, it's not my forgiveness, it's God's forgiveness. And what is, uh, what is said there is just as valid and certain as if God himself dealt with you. Why? Well, because he is. 
Because God is dealing with you. Because the words that are spoken are not the man's words, it's the office's words. And whose office is it? Christ. So when the pastor speaks according to his office, it's never the man, it's always the pastor. Or, excuse me, it's never the man, it's always the, the it is always Christ. Okay? So uh, there's a great quote, I think it's from St. Augustine, and he says that um, God ratifies in heaven what his priests do on earth. So when the, when the priest, the pastor, says your sins are forgiven, they're just as forgiven in heaven above, right? You know, like when I say your sins are forgiven, the sins are removed in real time from the book that God is looking at, all for the sake of Christ, okay? All right, to Sunday school. No, she said, she says it fast. That's, she, she goes, need to use potty, need to use potty, need to use potty. <laughs> no, that's okay. It was, that was one of those, I know Carolyn didn't hear. I was like, okay, uh, I know what she said. <laughs> Okay, it's a hymn Sunday today. If you didn't get the handout, there's two of them. They're right in the back. One of them is just the handout, looks like this. There's a big bunch of German on the front. That's a stapled one. And then there's a second one with the actual hymn on it, which looks like that. You'll need both of those, because this hymn is from a different hymnal. Now there's two things I want to talk about before we start diving into this. The first is, of course, uh, as has become the tradition. Here I've got some artwork to go along with today's talk. I couldn't find any that really went along with the readings, uh, but this goes along with the season. So from far away, you can, you can see what this is. It's two things at the same time. The first one is what? Right, okay, it's right, the crucified Christ. That's pretty obvious. Now what's the second thing though? The star, right, yeah, the star of Bethlehem. Now that's a really important thing, uh, that, that the star of Bethlehem is depicted with the crucified Christ in the center because that's theologically what it is. Because the star that announces the birth of Christ is the thing that is pointing to the fact that Christ is going to die. I mean, stop and think for a minute. You know about the gifts that the Magi bring, don't you? What is one of the gifts? Two of the gifts. Frankincense, Frankincense and, myrrh. and myrrh. What do you smell every Ash Wednesday? Myrrh. myrrh. Why do you smell myrrh, on, especially on Ash Wednesday? Gross. Pardon me? I mix it with the ashes, firstly, and this is inside baseball for you. Uh, there's little tricks and things in the church. If you just try to put ashes on people's foreheads, they don't stick and it makes a mess. So inside baseball, what do you do? You just mix a little bit of oil with it and it becomes a little bit of a paste and then it sticks to people's foreheads. Most churches use olive oil, which is perfectly appropriate. We use myrrh oil, which does exactly the same thing as the olive oil, except it also comes with that pungent, sweet myrrh smell. And yes, I did bring the myrrh back from Jerusalem. But why is myrrh the oil 
that we use. Why is it important that you smell that smell? Yes, because it's a burial spice. If you know, if you want to know what you smell like dead, come to church on Ash Wednesday and you'll smell it. Because we're going to talk to you all about how you're ashes and you're going to die and you're going to go into that ground and that ground is going to eat you up and it's going to make you into the very thing that it is. It's going to turn you back into the dust that you came from. And you know what you smell like? You smell like myrrh. That's the smell of your death. That's a burial spice. It's an anointing spice. Because remember back in the day, when you put a body in a closed tomb or you bury a body in the ground in that kind of a climate, it doesn't smell so good. Uh, so they use lots of burial spices to make death smell sweet, to cover up the stench. So we use the myrrh oil here on Ash Wednesday for that purpose. But what kind of a gift for a newborn baby, even a king, is frankincense and myrrh. Think about it. They're called wise men. They ain't stupid. <laughs> They're the magi that came because they saw the star and they knew what the star meant. And it meant more than, oh, there's an important person being born here. They know what the Old Testament scriptures say. And when the star appears, they know from the Old Testament scriptures what this thing is pointing to. And it is pointing to the king of Israel who is born. Herod gets upset because Herod is afraid that the king of Israel, oh, he's going to dethrone me. And I'll tell you one thing about that Herod. He is paranoid. He killed one of his own kids because he thought he was going to try and take the throne from him. He didn't care. It was his throne and he wasn't going to let anybody take it. I mean, look at the innocents of Bethlehem that were martyred at his command and ultimately by his hand, all because he was afraid of a usurper. But the magi that come understand the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, to be something more. They understand it more fully than you, even what the disciples think. Because, you know, what happens on Palm Sunday? He rides into Jerusalem, and what does everybody say? Hail. Yeah. Hail the king of, king of David, Hosanna to the son of David. We strew palm branches on the ground. Because everybody thinks, hey, this guy is the king. He's going to kick out Herod. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to take over this country, and he's going to give it back to the Jews. Give it back to the people. Yes! Viva la revolution! That's what they think about Jesus. Okay? And that's not why Jesus has come. When he is the king and when he is the conqueror, it's not of secular domains. Which is why, you know, Pilate says what he says, and Jesus says, well, you would have no power unless my father gave it to you. When he also tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If Jesus, had, if Jesus wanted to come and conquer Jerusalem, would he ride in on a donkey and let himself get handed over and beat up and crucified? No! And actually, this is the, uh, this is the perspective of Islam, of the Muslims. No, Muhammad would not ever allow himself or any of his prophets to be humiliated. And therefore, Jesus did not die on the cross. It was somebody else. 
He did not die on the cross. He was not betrayed. He was not tortured because that would be a humiliation of Allah's prophet and Allah would never allow that. But he does because he's not coming to conquer the world. He's not coming to put territory markers on a map like Alexander the Great and say, ah, look at the breadth of my domain. So when he comes, or when the Magi come, they see his star and they say, this is the king of Israel and we know what the king of Israel is coming to do. And that is what? Why are Advent and Lent related? Why are they penitential seasons? Because Jesus comes to do what? Mm, yes, but you have to consider what the means are for, of your salvation. Death. Death! Why is Jesus incarnate? So he can die. Why is Jesus born of Mary? To die. Why does Jesus come to this creation at all? To die. That's his only purpose, is to die. Because in the death of Jesus, in the death of that little infant in the manger, all of salvation is one for man. That is his purpose. <laughs> so they come to him and they have the burial spices. They know what this king is for. They know why he has come. Now, here's another really neat thing. And this is going to be really hard. Uh, if you're far away and I don't know how much, whoops, I don't know how much I can actually zoom in on this or if I can at all. Oh my goodness. I can't zoom in, I'm afraid. Okay, but you can come and look at it up close, but in the hands and the feet and in the side of this little star of Bethlehem, there are red wounds. Remember how I keep, I keep telling you that the crucifixion of Christ is an eternal thing. It's not, it is, okay, it is a fixed point in history. If you open a history book, it does say, okay, at this point there was a man and he was crucified and blah, 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 blah. But it, it's also outside of history. Christ is eternally crucified because Christ is out eternally the Savior. And I love that this artist always depicts Christ as crucified no matter where he is. If he's in the womb, his hands are pierced. If, he's, you know, if it's in the star, his hands are pierced. Because that's important. Christ is eternally crucified because he comes to die and because his salvation is eternal. So that's a little bit of art just for the Christmas season to get you in the mood. Well, actually Advent, but you know, we're close enough. Um, okay, speaking of close enough, this is... A Christmas hymn, so you're welcome. We're not doing an Advent hymn. By the way, this is why you should join choir. If for no other reason than that you want Christmas to start early, because we don't just come for lessons and carols not having prepared anything, so you get to sing Christmas carols a month and a half before Christmas. So if you like Christmas, well, you ought to join the choir and come sing. It's a great, fun time. Um, now, you know, I, I often will have a quote here at the top of these hymn handouts, and, and uh, typically they're kind of short. This one is long, and this breaks my, what I normally want to do, because I want to have short things that are easy to digest and easy to remember, sort of like aphorisms. Uh, but this one is too beautiful for me not to share, and this is from St. Augustine's uh, Christmas sermon. I don't remember what year he preached it, but it's, it's cataloged as sermon number 191. And I, I just, for the Christmas and, and for the Advent season too, I don't think I have read a more stunningly beautiful illustration of the incarnation and the, the birth of Christ. So I want to read this to you here. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, 
might nurse at his mother's breasts. I love that. There's a great hymn in TLH, Now Praise We Christ the Holy One. It was, I believe it was written by Luther. And one of the stanzas is, um, Within a manger filled with hay, in poverty content he lay, with milk was fed the Lord of all who feeds the ravens when they call. And, you know, you have to take a step back almost after singing that and, and consider to yourself, what is, the, what is the gravity of this? Now praise we Christ the Holy One. That the one who feeds all of creation, in fact, the one who gives you your daily bread, the one who feeds the ravens, then becomes a dependent himself and, and nurses at a woman's breasts. Oh my word, I, the incarnation is such a significant thing. Very often we gloss over the importance of the incarnation. We rush to get to Christmas and we talk about how great it is that Jesus is born. But the, the fact that he is born, the fact that Mary does conceive, that God actually takes on flesh, this great, fantastic, unexplainable mystery is so vast and so significant that we, not, we, we ought never to take it for granted. That the bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey. Isn't this just gorgeous? You walk the way and the way itself becomes tired from the journey that it's asking you to walk because it doesn't just sit there as a road. It walks the journey with you because it isn't a thing. It is a person. It takes on flesh. It is a he, not an it. The way becomes tired from the journey that the truth might be accused by false witnesses. The judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge. The one who raises up the dead to judge them sits in a throne or sits on a, on a seat and is judged by someone who is going to die. A creature. He's judged by his creature. I made you. You know, Paul says, does the, does the vessel say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? Yes. Only once. Only once, and that is in the incarnation, because the ves or the potter stands there, not in judgment, but being judged, and all the little pots that he made sit around him and say, you're guilty, you're guilty. We judge you, O hands of the potter. The vessels judge the potter, and the vessels put the potter to death. It's significant. Justice be sentenced by the unjust. The teacher be beaten with whips, the vine be crowned with thorns. Uh, the teacher that is beaten with whips is an allusion to the discipline in the classroom, by the way. So you know, like in the olden days, if you were really bad, you'd go get your knuckles wrapped or, or, you, or you'd get a spanking from your teacher. How humiliating. I, I have no concept, well, actually I do because I was homeschooled. But you know, to be, it's different when you're homeschooled and your parents are the ones teaching you and then they're also the ones administering the punishment. You expect it from your parents, but when it's your teacher that actually gives you the spanking, I have no concept of that. But I, my, my, my intellect says that that must be a very uh, 
humiliating thing to be spanked actually by your teacher. And then, you know, by the time you get home, oh, your, your folks already know about it somehow. And then you get spanked all over again. But uh, so this discipline in the, it's not the teacher who, who is disciplined, it's the teacher who does the discipline. So this would be like going to Catholic school and actually disciplining the nuns instead of having them discipline you. Okay? The teacher is beaten with whips. The vine be crowned with thorns. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might be made weak. That he who makes, that he who makes well might be wounded. That life might die. He was made man to suffer these and similar undeserved things for us, that he might free us who were undeserving. And he who on account of us endured such great evils merited no evil, while we who through him were so bountifully blessed had no merits to show for such blessings. Therefore, because of all this, he who before all ages and without a beginning determined by days was the Son of God, saw fit in these latter days to be the Son of Man. Do you notice in the scriptures when Jesus talks with the Pharisees and the scribes and he says things about being the Son of God, how they don't typically get upset with him when he says things about the Son of God. Have you ever noticed that? They don't really get upset when he says, I'm the son of God. I think they don't have a concept of what he really means by that because there are other people who were very great who were called sons of God. Like firstly, Adam is a son of God. Seth is a son of God. David is a son of God. So when he says, I'm the son of God, they think, well, he's equating himself with these really great important people. And so they don't, on the one hand, fully grasp what he's saying by saying, no, 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 no. They were just... Uh, you know, sons according to promise, but I am the one who is the promise. I am the OG. I am, I am the original son of God. Everybody else who's a son of God is only because I am. You know, I am, ego eimi, I am. Everyone is only because I am. Uh, so they don't fully understand that, but so they don't really get upset when he says the son of God. They get upset when he says the son of man. Why? What's, what's the deal with being the son of man? And why would the son of man be offensive when the son of God would not be? Okay, yes, son of man is, it's a Christological term. And, and, you know, it goes back even to Daniel, the son of man. I saw one as of the son of man who comes in judgment. Yes, he's, he's talking about being the Christ. But, but why is the Christ called the son of man? There's, it's, it's, it goes deeper than just him saying, I am the Christ. Now, they do get upset that he calls himself the Christ. He can say he's the son of God, but, you know, doggone it. If he calls himself the Christ, though, but there's more. He, he, why doesn't he just say, I'm the Christ? Why does he say the son of man? And why in this sermon, when Augustine uses this language, why does he differentiate this? The son of God saw fit to become the son of man. Because he 
Yes! Because he's born, of, he's born of woman, because he takes on your flesh, because it's God becoming man, and that is unheard of. If God's going to come, he's going to come, but God's not going to come down to us. He's not going to join us in our level. You're going you're to tell me that God actually takes on human flesh? You're going to tell me that you man standing right there, that you are God? Yes. That's very significant, that the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus. It's not parts. Um, and, and there are a lot of heresies, Christological heresies. I think probably most of the heresies in the church, historically, are Christological heresies. Heresies um, about who and what the Christ is and what his relationship is to the Father and what his relationship is to man. Most of the heresies of the church deal with that. Arianism, one of the biggest heresies, well, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? He's the Son of God. The Son of God that God the Father created. And whatever God the Father is made of, the Son is made of something different. They're not the same. Whoops, that's a heresy. Uh, Nestorianism, well, there's two natures really in Christ. He's God and he's man, but, but you know, he's really like a disguise. They're not together. They're like two things. So uh, when he's doing this, he's being God. When he's doing this, he's being man. So God doesn't actually die on the cross. Just the human side of God dies. And then man doesn't really rise. It's the God side of him. Well, that's a heresy too. I mean, you, you see this. That there's so, human reason and intellect and knowledge, frankly, they can't be trusted. Now, when it comes to things spiritual and things theological, your reason and your intellect more often hinder you than they do help you because you always have to ask this question, why? And you always have to say this, but I don't understand. How could this have happened? I don't understand. Well, here's a newsflash for you. No one never said you had to understand. <laughs> We call it the mystery of the incarnation for a reason. How is it that body and blood is on that altar? Explain it to me. You can't explain it. Why? Because it's a mystery. Hey, listen, you know, Christians, friends, children, have a little fun. Have a little fun with church. It's a mystery. Just let it be a mystery and have fun with it. Hey, I don't know. I don't know how it's body and blood, but Jesus said it was, and this is something I don't understand, and I love it. I can't tell you how it is. All I know is that it is. I don't need to know how it is. It's a mystery. Come on in, the water's great. Enjoy the mystery. It's like, do, you, do, you, do any of you enjoy watching magicians? My mother hates magicians. And this is my critique of her. The reason that my mother hates magicians is because she says they're liars. And I know that they're liars. And I know that they're not really doing anything magic. I know that somehow they're tricking me. And I don't like it. And the problem is, everybody knows a magician is a liar. But if you go into it knowing that they're lying to you and then trying to figure out, well, how are they lying to me? You're missing the point of what's magical about it because you're trying to figure it out. How are they doing that? They're lying to me and I need to get to the bottom of it. And that's, 
you know, that's really the critique of, of the attitude that I don't like magicians because I know they're lying and, and that um, I'm not saying everybody has to like magic. I'm just, that's sort of the critique of it because it goes against the entire ethos of what magicians are. Nobody thinks that when you, you know, wave a magic wand, it's really a magic wand. But you can still applaud the fact that you sit there in wonder going, how on earth? Did he do that? And it's fun because you don't know. And you go, oh, I have no, I can't conceive of a way that in this reality that could possibly happen. And I have no idea how he would you know, do this. I saw that ball go in that hand, but then he, and it was gone. How did it get in that little girl's ear? I don't know. And that's the whole fun of it, that you don't know. And, and when you get to the point where it's not fun because you don't know, it's, it's your reason and your intellect that are intruding on your imagination and your sense of wonder. And when it comes to the church and the sacraments, it's the same thing. If you go to the sacrament and you think, I, I, how is this, how is this doing? How's that pastor? Is there some kind of, you know, secret compartment? And then it flips it over, and then, oh, now it's the blood, look at that, hey, how'd he do that, my lovely assistant? I'll be here all week. No, it's not entertainment. It's just wonder. It's just mystery. How can it be? <laughs> I don't know. I'm the one with the theology degree, and I can't tell you, and that's okay. Just go there, and you think, every time I come here, I am amazed because Jesus' body and blood is there. Every time I go to a baptism, I'm amazed because it's a miracle. It's like a magic act. Look at this. A child is now saved. How did he do it? He did it. He just did it. And you can't let reason and intellect get in the way. Therefore, because of all this, he who before, oh, I already read that. Born of the Father, not, blah, 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 blah. No, I didn't. Wait. I didn't know you were there for He's the Son of God, saw fit to become Son of Man. And he who was born the Son of the Father, but not made by the Father, was made in the Mother, whom he had made, that he might sometime be born here on earth of her who could never have been anywhere except through him. I almost cried the first time I read this because it's so beautiful. C cut this out or something. Put it on your fridge. This just... Beautiful, beautiful. So anyway, to the hymn now. The stage is set. The stage is set. Now the hymn is, a boy is born in Bethlehem. Your page has two sides. One says a boy, the other one says a child. There are different translations. The boy is the one we're doing. It says 112 at the top, should line up here. This is from the ELH, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Hymnary which is a hymnal that comes from the Norwegian Lutheran Synod, which is up in northern Minnesota. And they, it's uh, Bethany at Mankato, I think, is where that, where that is. And this book was published there. You can buy it from the college bookstore website. And it's actually pretty cheap. It's, I think, $15 when I bought it. But it's a fabulous hymnal, really, really good. There's no such thing as a perfect hymnal, not even the TLH. <laughs> I know, I, there, are, yeah, there, are, there are many. So my roommate, when I was doing my STM, he was one of those who's, 
who was, the TLH is infallible, nothing will ever be as good as the TLH, and nothing before ever was as good as the TLH. There's the Bible, and then there's TLH. And what's his name? <laughs> Craig Stevens, he's a pastor out near Lincoln. You can go, you can go visit with him sometime. So he, he was a big TLH guy, and, and he and I would always just poke at each other about that, just in good fun. Although uh, I received more pokes because he was much better at it, and he knew just how to irritate me to where I couldn't respond. And then he'd leave me going, um, Anyway, LSB, it's a miracle the hymnal came out at all, frankly. Some really good things here. Some really good starts of good things here. And a lot of not so good things. TLH, a lot of real solid things in there. Some influences of and uh, some illustrations of some not great things in there. Uh, I think it's a better hymnal than the LSB is, but it has its own issues. ELH, not perfect, has its own issues. But ELH is actually a, a hymnal that is much closer to TLH than it is to LSB, and it does a lot of the same things that LSB does, like take hymns from the TLH but then put in all of the rest of the stanzas, um, or take hymns that are old Lutheran hymns that weren't in TLH that people don't know as well anymore and then reintroduce them. It just uses better translations on some of those. And so, but it has its weaknesses too. But this is one, actually this hymn is one of my, it's in my top 10 Christmas hymns. I love it. And um, this is from the ELH. Now on the back side here where it says the child is born in Bethlehem, this is from another book called the Liber Hymnorum which you can buy from Emmanuel Press. If you ever want to look at these books, I have them in my office and you can borrow them. The Liber Hymnorum is a book that has all of the old Latin hymns that were used by the Lutheran churches in the time of the Reformation. So you'll find lots of hymns that you didn't know were as old as they are that are in that book, and it's divided into two parts. There's one where it has the old, old musical notation and the Latin, and then the other side, there are new translations done by uh, a gentleman named Matthew Carver who does excellent work. Now, this hymn uh, is a hymn from the 14th century in the mid-1300s. Uh, it was discovered in, well, the oldest manuscript of it is from a, a Benedictine book. So they know that it existed then. It may have been earlier, but we only know that it was at least as far back as the mid-1300s. It was extremely popular at the time. Uh, it started out actually as a Latin chant for Christmas Day. And if you want to get really specific about it, it's a Latin chant for the end of the service for the third mass of Christmas Day. Not the second or the first, only the third. Because they all have different texts which would be the equivalent of us doing, if we did a midnight mass here at Holy Trinity, all of the readings and hymns and everything would be different than coming then again on Christmas morning. And there's Christmas noon, Christmas midday, and Christmas day uh, late afternoon. So we could still technically do that same system. Just like Easter, the Easter sunrise service is considered the, Eastern, the Easter dawn, and that has a different series of readings and different hymns than the Easter chief service, which is what we would observe at 10.30. So it's that idea that it's such a big, fancy, important festival day that we have multiples. You, you go to church uh, more than one time a day. That's what they used to do. We'd go to church 
all these different times because it's so big that we can't just confine our celebration to one church service. It explodes and it's basically a whole day of going to church because of how big and important the day is. So this was the Latin chant. Um, there was a, a tone for it, which I'll play for you in a little bit, uh, that was used. And then that tone ended up becoming the melody that they would use for hymns when they set this to a strophic uh, hymn. And then that melody became the tenor line of what is now the popular melody, which is actually puer natus, excuse me, puer natus in Bethlehem, which is the name of the chant, excuse me, and the name of the tune, which is just Latin for a, a child is born in Bethlehem or a male child or boy is born in Bethlehem. So um, this hymn, it was extraordinarily popular among the German Lutherans. The Catholics had the chant of it, and then when it took on its tone, the Lutherans just exploded. They loved this hymn. This was a really, really big, important hymn for the early Lutherans. They absolutely adored it. Um, you can see here, this is just a piece of a little manuscript. This is from the, uh, the um, Evangelical, uh, Evangelical Lutherisch Gesangbuch of, I think, 1886, I want to guess, but don't quote me on that. And this is the hymnal that was published by the Buffalo Synod. If you know anything about the history of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod or Lutheranism in America, you know that there used to be a synod out, the New York Synod or the Buffalo Synod out there. And they were different than the Evangelical Lutheran Synod and gathering congregations of uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Missouri that all subscribe to the uh, Augsburg Confession uh, unaltered, unconditionally. Yeah. Other states. Right, and yeah, and other states, that's right. Uh, which then, you know, they condensed down to Missouri, Ohio. Missouri and Ohio, and then Missouri Synod became. So, but anyway, so this is the Buffalo Synod, while the Buffalo Synod was still alive. There's the Buffalo Synod, the Tennessee Synod, the Missouri, Ohio, and other states Synod. There were, there were a bunch of these little synods, and this was their hymnal. And you can see that the German text of this, of course, Puer um, natus in Bethlehem, you can see that Latin, der hymns, Puer natus in Bethlehem, Deutsch. Because it's the German translation of it. Uh, which is very, it's very difficult for me to read this uh, Fraktur script. Uh, but the, let me, I, th I think it's on the handout actually where it is the German. No, maybe not. Anyway. First yeah, ein Kind, ein Kind geboren zu Bethlehem. Yeah, a child born, geboren. Yes, so you can, this really, 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 really big popular hymn, and all they have to do is say, Der Himmel puer natus in Bethlehem Deutsch, and everybody knows, oh yeah, I know this hymn, this is in my top ten, everybody loves it. So lots of Lutherans wrote settings of this, I'll play you some. The melody that we have preserved here is really from, uh, it's a simplified melody, and that one, I, from my research, I would argue that it goes back to Samuel Scheidt. Unfortunate last name, but a very good composer. I'm glad somebody picked up on that. Uh, 
Pardon me? Shite. Yeah. He was a real piece of work. <laughs> uh, anyway, very good composer, wrote a lot of really good uh, Lutheran things. You're familiar with Samuel Scheidt, but I can guarantee you, you wouldn't know it because the name's not one that you really think of. In fact, I have a whole, um, I think, two or three different albums in my music library that are um, historic performances of strictly Lutheran music. Um, uh, one of them is by Bart, Bart Jacobs and the, I don't know, um, Renaissance, I don't know. They play on period instruments and there's a great choir and oh, it's really, really, really good. And it's cool to hear this stuff that was present and really popular during the time of the Reformation be played. So uh, Samuel Scheidt did this, just a very simple tune, bum, 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 bum. Um, no, no real frills. Uh, but there were a lot of other people that used it. Bach used it. There's a chorale setting of it, which of course contains a lot of different harmonization, makes it a little more complex, lots of chromaticism. Um, I think we'll, I think Walther did a, a, an organ work of it. Um, I know that Bach's teacher whose name I, oh, this is really embarrassing. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll remember it later. Um, his box teacher, his organ teacher, actually did a version of this. He was a good Lutheran, too. And, of course, the biggest name associated with this hymn is Michael Praetorius. Now, this says setting by Michael Praetorius. Um, I don't know that this is entirely the Praetorius setting. If you don't know Michael Praetorius, Buckle in and go take a listen. Praetorius is like the king of the Reformation era music. Just fantastic. Here's one that you know of Praetorius that you didn't know you knew. In dulce jubilo, bum 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 ba da dum. That hymn, Michael Praetorius wrote that hymn. And he has a really, really, really great, big, giant, bombastic setting of it in his Christmas Mass. You should listen to the Praetorius Christmas Mass. And if you want to know which recording you should listen to, you should listen to the recording with Paul McCreesh and the Gabrielli Consort, because any other recording is a dumpster fire. <laughs> That's, I'm just kidding, but the Paul McCreesh one is actually the best. And it's all on period instruments, too, so... Uh, that's really good. Now, just a couple quick notes on the text. Stanza three, which is, actually, the stanzas are correct on this one by Matthew Carver, the one on the back side, because this front side, a boy is born in Bethlehem, this is from an English translation. It came through the Anglican church to us, and they reordered some of the Latin stanzas, and they used an edition of the Latin that had more stanzas. This one has 13, and this one only has 10. So, Closest to the original Latin is this one on the back, actually, and stanza three, by ox and ass the babe is known. And I want to talk about that just quickly because it's kind of a trope in Christmas music of this time and translates actually into a lot of Anglican Christmas music. One thing that you should think of immediately, ox and ass, is what child is this? Where ox and ass are sleeping uh, or feeding, one of the... But, uh, the, this comes from a, a different version or a misreading of a verse in Daniel where it says by uh, 
it says by the years he is known and this other version says by the beasts he is known and I don't I haven't really done a lot of research into why it's different but so then they look at they looked at that the medieval folks did and said oh by the beasts he is known okay well then Isaiah says that there's he's known by the ox and the ass so that must be what it's referring to so then in all their hymnody they talk about how Christ is known by the ox and the ass and that translates in then, and you know, there are Lutherans that make fun of a lot of the Anglican hymns because they talk about the animals, uh, but this is actually where a lot of that comes from, this reading back in the medieval times of what Daniel said. Now, I'm gonna play you some stuff and then we'll learn to sing the hymn. Just a few, Buxtehuda, I didn't see it on the computer, I remembered it before I saw it. Buxtehuda was Bach's teacher. Okay, look at that, it is Buxtehuda, I was right. Okay, here's the chant tone. This is the original. This became sort of truncated and simplified and then it became the new melody, which then became the tenor line for standard four-part harmonizations. Now, we'll listen to just a little bit of Bucks Tehuda. Hey, wait. Do what I... There we go. There's the melody on the top. Do, 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 do. Okay, so you get it. Bach wrote, he wrote one of his Orgelbuchlein, his little organ book. He wrote one of these on this one too. It's much faster, but I didn't include it here. Now, here's Bach's harmonization. You can hear the German in this, in the tune, I mean. This, just like in Dulce Jubilo, the other Praetorius hymn, that rhythm, that's like the Lutheran cha-chas. It's that there was a style that was really, really great. They liked that rhythmic, that little rhythmic kick. Uh, because this is a happy hymn, so we're not going to have it be dum bum 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 bum. It's happy. Dun, 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 dun. So they, it has the rhythm because it's a really really happy hymn. But that's the German uh, musical influence. Now, this is another Bach, and this is from the Epiphany Mass, which is another one, which also you should listen to Gabrielli Consort. Basically, if you want my personal opinion. If you're looking for big recordings from this era, you should always go with Paul McCreish and the Gabrielli Consort. They're just the best. With little organ continual. Rejoice therefore Jerusalem, Alleluia, See, and if you can read the music and you're following along, this has a little more of the da, 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 more of the kick to it than this does. 
because this melody is the Samuel Scheidt melody, which is simplified, it's the easiest one to sing. Now, here's Praetorius. It has a slow start, but don't be fooled. Okay, here we go. See, it's all, it's really flashy. Okay, let's go here. This is what Lutheran churches used to sound like. I've also played this, which I'm a little, makes me partial to it. Yeah, so anyway, this is. This is the melody. Okay, now I'll sing the first stanza. We'll do, we'll just do one, three, and six. I'll sing the first one so you see how it goes with the notes. We won't do it that fast. I. That's Praetorius, not the congregation. A boy is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Rejoice therefore, Jerusalem. Alleluia, alleluia. Stanza three. When Mary Gabriel's words received, words received, within her was her son conceived. Alleluia, alleluia. Six. Tis flesh like ours, he's clothed in, he's clothed in. Though free from man's primeval sin, alleluia, alleluia. We'll see you at the altar.